This yes. is hell. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime because this is hell and a great fortune has been made in the railway freight business over the last several years due to As today's guest reports, the Trump administration overturning an Obama-era rule mandating trains carrying hazardous and flammable materials to have updated electronic brakes instead of Civil War-era ones. Sure, the Biden administration could have reinstated those rules during their first year in office, but they did not. The result of overturning the Obama regulation and Biden not putting them back into effect could be seen on February 3rd when the Norfolk Southern train carrying highly toxic material derailed, exploded into what some have described as looking like a mushroom cloud, and its payload of chemicals spewed into the ground as well as pouring into the nearby Ohio River, which has put water systems in both Cincinnati and Louisville downstream on high alert. This environmental and public health disaster could have been easily avoided. However, lobbyists from the industry convinced those in the Trump administration to deregulate the industry even more than it already was. Of course, who could possibly have predicted a disaster like the one we're seeing in East Palestine, Ohio? Well, the Railway Workers Union, whose strike was busted by the Biden administration, as well as by both Democrats and Republicans in Congress and the Senate, they knew about it. But the kind of thing must, that kind of thing must be, I mean, this kind of explosion, it's got to be unprecedented. So nobody saw this big of a disaster as a possibility, right? Except that's not the case either because a very similar derailment happened in 2012. And since 1990, there have been an average of nearly five train derailments a day in the United States due to its crumbling infrastructure, according to our guest, a lack of democracy. In a few minutes, we will be speaking with associate writer for Breaking News at the New Republic, Prem Thacker, who will discuss his many articles on the Ohio train derailment, including Life After the Ohio Train Derailment. After train derailment, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine says, I'm not seeing any problems. Norfolk Southern pulls out of Ohio train derailment town hall, citing safety concerns. The conspiracy of the Ohio train derailment is right in front of us. Norfolk Southern train derails in Detroit, Michigan, days after crisis in Ohio. And Biden officials hesitate to update rail brake guidelines for fear of pushback. Prem's work has also appeared in The American Prospect, Washington Monthly, CNN Podcast, and his newsletter, Better World, which you can find at betterworld.substack.com. Follow Prem on Twitter at Prem underscore Thacker. That's T-H-A-K-K-E-R. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Lindsay Gorey. And Lindsay, I got to come up with a better question to ask you at the beginning of each and every show other than anything new by you. But in the meantime, anything new by you? Well, you know, when I was leaving the other day, I was just over here. I came prepared today since I was like, I don't know, yesterday. 
I knew you were going to ask this question again. <laughs> I know. We got to get so, a new question. <laughs> I found a bunch of COVID tests in the alley when I left yesterday. <laughs> what the hell? Yeah. Like three boxes of three, four, three boxes. They're four packs of COVID tests. I was just over here unboxing one of them, seeing if all the pieces were here. Are they? I think maybe, but I think some of the other ones are missing parts. I don't know if, you know, <laughs> who's taking the same kinds of COVID tests as me, but... Who is walking or driving down an alley and says, well, I better get rid of these COVID tests? I, I, nothing, nothing, you know, I've seen so many crazy things in an alley. Nothing phases me anymore. I'm just like, okay, like, it, you know, if all the pieces aren't here, I'm just picking up some litter, I guess. I always love when I find fast food containers or bags uh, behind my house that are from fast food places that you don't even know where the closest one is. Like, where's the nearest Hardee's? I'm pretty sure it's in Indiana. <laughs> and <You laughs> their trash ended up here. Yeah, how, how did this happen? I'm always That always freaks me out. So listeners, uh, if you have any suggestions for a better question for me to ask Lindsay, other than the lazy, cliche, and predictable, how are you doing? Despite the fact that Lindsay's story about how she's been doing is, was crazy, please send it to chuckatthisishell.com. For that matter, and in light of my recent interview on CKUW, the University of Winnipeg campus and college radio station, if you have any uh, questions at all that you would like to ask me, send me an email, message us on Facebook, or direct message us via Twitter. Also, uh, this will really start your day in a great way. We're getting closer to nuclear Armageddon, and I'm not joking. Russia has pulled out of the last remaining nuclear weapons treaty with the United States. That's just breaking now. So that with uh, the United States seemingly provocative moves with the military around China, and now China saying that they may arm the Russians in the war in Ukraine. And yeah, it looks like World War III is right around the corner. So it's been nice doing the show for the last 26 years. I don't know how much longer we'll be doing it. Lindsay, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, where do you see yourself in five years? Mm, under a mushroom cloud, that's where I'm going to guess. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can find all of our stuff right now at thisishell.com. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. Or you can email chuck at thisishell.com. As always, we will be announcing this week's winner at the end of this week's show. Following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth, Lindsay, what is Jeff talking about this week? Jeff kicks rolled, rolled. I can't say his name. Jeff kicks rolled doll again while he's down. (laughs) And that's a great time to kick somebody while they're down. It's probably the best time to kick somebody because while they're up, they might kick back. So you'd want to do it while they're down. (laughs) Last week at at this time... uh, we told you how past guest Seymour Hirsch has a new article out on his Substack about his investigation that led him to conclude the U.S. was behind the explosion of the Nord Stream pipeline connecting Russia with Europe, which was an environmental disaster and was blamed on Russia and the U.S. media because, well, everything is, unless the media is blaming China because the U.S. plays absolutely no role in any of the problems facing the world today. So, 
We asked people who follow us on Patreon. We asked listeners who are part of the Welcome to the Hellhole Facebook group. And if you want to join the nearly 400 other listeners in that group, just send an invitation request to any of the admins there. But now I'm asking everyone, everyone here over the air, should we or shouldn't we have Cy Hirsch back on the show? We have heard from dozens, dozens of listeners so far, and the result is a freaking tie. And we need your tie-breaking comments, which, again, you can email to us, message us on Facebook, or DM us via Twitter. But why ask you instead of deciding on our own? Well, if we are going to sit here and insist that we need a true, robust democracy, which would be nothing like the fake one we have here in the States that has been hijacked by the rich and the wealthy uh, and the wealth that makes them powerful, then we better practice what we preach. It's one of the reasons we ask you for guest and topic suggestions. We want this process to be as participatory and transparent as we want our political system. A nonfiction prof I had in college years ago told me that nobody can guess what people actually want. If they could, they'd be as rich and powerful as the people who stole what was left of an already weak democratic tradition in the United States. So, we are through guessing and want to know who you want on the show. If we could, every guest on the show would be suggested by you. All that means, first, tell us what you think about having Seymour Hirsch on about his new expose, and second, tell us who you want to hear on the show or what topic you would like to hear discussed. Again, send all that to chuckatthisishell.com, DM us on Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, or message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. This is not the media. This is hell. And if you are listening because This Is Hell is not the regular corporate commercial media outlet airing on W, we air on WNUR, Chicago's sound experiment, completely independent, non-commercial, anti-corporate radio. So show your support for WNUR and This Is Hell by going to WNUR.org slash donate right now. You can show your support there. WNUR strives to provide a forum for underrepresented music and ideas by promoting musicians, musical genres, news, public affairs issues, and athletic events that are often overlooked by major media outlets. Moreover, WNUR aims to provide an inclusive space for people to learn and express themselves by exploring and promoting underrepresented content and in turn sharing that knowledge with others. Support completely commercial-free independent college radio now by visiting WNUR.org donate where you can see all the donation tiers plus all the stuff you will get for donating like a Surprise! You might get a vintage sticker, a postcard, a fridge magnet, or uh, airwaves, airwaves for your Hairwave CD. Or there's the WNUR die-cut sticker by Northwestern artist Hannah Boruchov, the WNUR short sleeve t-shirt by another Northwestern artist, Cora Pancoast, the classic WNUR orange beanie, the WNUR tote bag designed by yet another Northwestern artist, Sarah Welford, the WNUR hoodie by, you guessed it, yet another Northwestern artist, Gemma DeCetra, or a hand-picked vinyl record or CD from WNUR's archive. Show your appreciation for WNUR being the first station to air This Is Hell and now doing so for over 26 years by going to wnur.org slash donate. And as it is February and fundraiser February, apparently, NUR is not the only station that carries This Is Hell that's 
raising money right now. CKUW-FM, the University of Winnipeg campus and community radio station, which is celebrating its 60th anniversary this year, is also in the midst of what they call their fun drive. CKUW is a nonprofit volunteer-run organization. CKUW does not air paid advertising as the station prefers to be supported by the community and dedicated listeners. CKUW is listener-oriented, listener-supported, as opposed to commercial radio, which is advertiser-oriented and advertiser-supported. To show your support for CKUW, just visit ckuw.ca where you will see all of their donation levels. Coming up, the disastrous and toxic East Palestine, Ohio train derailment. We will have This Week in Rotten History. Lindsay will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which I forgot to post on all social media, so my apologies, but it's up now. And we'll tell you everything happening on tomorrow's show, including this week's final guest. The planet's on fire. So, yes... This is hell, and if you saw that mushroom cloud-like explosion from the train derailment in Ohio, you would literally think that, yes, the planet is actually on fire. It's yet another symptom of a political system that puts profits before people, so much so that it seemingly could not care less about the people. Here to help us have a better understanding of what the hell happened in Ohio, associate writer for Breaking News at the New Republic. Prem Thacker is our guest. You can follow Prem on Twitter at Prem underscore Thacker. Welcome to This Is Hell, Prem. Hi, thank you for having me. I appreciate it a lot. Uh, Thank you so much for being on our show. You've been doing some really exceptional work when it comes to the breaking news out of East Palestine. You write that, uh, well, 10 days after the train derailment happened, you reported how on February 3rd, a devastating, just just to give everybody the basic background, background on, fe- on February 3rd, a devastating 150-car train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, leaked noxious chemicals like carcinogenic vinyl chloride into the surrounding air, soil, and water. Officials say it's now safe for people to come home, but the Harm has not stopped. People in East Palestine and neighboring towns are suffering from respiratory issues, skin reactions, and more, while animals have been found dead. And it's not clear what support residents have or who even qualifies for that support. How prepared are communities to respond to these kinds of disasters, these kinds of environmental and health disasters? And should we hold local communities in any way accountable for this lack of preparedness? Or is this something nobody could have ever predicted or expected or just something that's completely outside of their uh, capabilities in responding to? So this is, I think, a really perfect framing question because I think it gets to a lot of, I think it pokes holes in kind of a lot of the people criticizing different responses here. I think this kind of goes to show that our communities are really just kind of withered away in a lot of ways in, in terms of their own capability to protect, you know, their people and respond to crises that, I mean, of course, shouldn't be happening in the first place. But it also, I think, really much hits home the point that our government needs to be much more able and, frankly, just willing to step in when those local communities still might fall short. Um, I think in this specific instance, it's hard to, you know, pin this on local or state regulators or officials um, completely. Um, especially, you know, just the mayor himself. I, I've talked to a lot of folks who've really found actually a lot of comfort in him just as someone who they can see in some ways is just 
really just, you know, one of their neighbors responding to something so unprecedented, but at the same time has, you know, been constantly out there, constantly trying to meet with people and then give them some sense of comfort in what, you know, I and other great reporters have tried to explain here, which is just so much confusion amongst so many people here. Um, you know, I, I'm sure we'll get into this later, but there's one aspect of this where there's just all of us who maybe don't live in East Palestine who are facing so much confusion and even maybe getting wrapped up into conspiracy about this. But the most important concern we should all have is the fact that these thousands of people that live in the community and live around it, they're the most confused, most implicated in not knowing exactly what to do. And, you know, as I get to in, in this story and others, um, initially, a lot of these folks were kind of when they first went to local and state officials for guidance and support, they were often directed to the company because, of course, you know, it is good that government officials are saying, you know, this is the company's fault and responsibility. But at the same time, these corporations are not and should not be proxies for government. Um, by definition, much of their driving motive is, is just the bottom line. Um, so to sort of be a government entity and sort of just rely on a company like Norfolk Southern to be responsible for not only the cleanup, which as we've seen has already not been necessarily great, um, but also just to take care of these people and compensate, you know, the expenses they have to deal with. We also saw there that that didn't go well either because, you know, this is a company, it's a corporation. If they're already responsible for so much ill in our society, how can we expect them to then be responsible to just simply take care of people, no less in the disaster they themselves have sort of wreaked havoc upon. So I think this is definitely a story of how important it is for us to really think of how we can empower local communities to both respond to any sort of crisis, whether it's man-made or natural, um, but also to empower state and federal regulators to ensure this doesn't happen. And if it does, there's the fear of God in these companies so that it doesn't happen again. We've been told forever, seemingly, that if we only ran government like a business, it would be so much more effective <laughs> and efficient. Clearly, first, is this what running a government like a business looks like? And secondly, why haven't we learned that lesson yet, that when you have a government run like a business and the business being the proxy for the government, this is exactly what will happen? I mean, yeah, that's just a really perfect um, sort of summation of this. Uh, and it reminds me, you know, just um, last night we were, or throughout yesterday, I was reporting on different ways that the lines between government and corporations can be blurred. Um, one aspect of this is just how much of a lobbying presence Norfolk Southern and real companies, just like fossil fuels, just like gun companies and so on and so forth, have within our government. I, I think... I believe the number that I reported was since 1998, Open Secrets showed that $750 plus million the industry has spent since 1998 to, to lobby the government, as in three quarters of a billion dollars. That's just mind boggling to hear out loud. Um, and Norfolk Southern itself, I believe, has spent some 80 million since around the same time to lobby. Um, and no crazier is this fact than of sort of the revolving door between these rail companies and government as in who from these companies and, and lobbyist firms are coming from different forms of government. I, I saw some individuals that worked for the Reagan administration and some Joe Manchin's office, some 
there's one individual who was a liaison with the Blue Dog Coalition. Um, some were even former members of Congress themselves, like Trent Lott and John Brew. And you'll notice, I mean, one common denominator here is that these are all conservatives or conservative Democrats. So conservatives in general, that's the common denominator. And so one aspect of this that I think has been so interesting to see is, you know, as there has been rightly so, you know, outrage from every corner of the political aisle on this instance, this is one of over a thousand derailments that happened in this country. Um, and of course, this is one that portends to be potentially more dangerous, but there's likely plenty more that perhaps to different degrees proffer, you know, similar risks to smaller communities that maybe just didn't catch the media flame. And this is just so commonplace. And a lot of the people, a lot of members of Congress, especially who are, you know, denouncing this, whether it's Senator J.D. Vance, um, Senator Ron Johnson, I mean, you could list and go down the list of every Republican, Marco Rubio, who's denouncing this, they either have never really said anything about environmental concerns or rail safety or workers' rights before in an actual earnest way, no less meaningfully advocated for those causes. Um, oftentimes they've contributed to, to the status quo, whether because they're involved in some way um, in this revolving door with you know staffers of their own offices or them actively signing on to policies or being a part of a conservative movement that happily allowed the Trump administration to roll back that Obama era regulation. Um, and of course, this does not, you know, um, not implicate Democrats, because uh, as I said, many, many of these conservative members are conservative Democrats who are participating in the, in the charade just as well. And so all that just goes to show that this sort of pro-business, um, you know, let these industries play around kind of ideology, which is inherently wrapped up with conservative politics. It's, it's sort of, definitional as to how both government and business runs in this country. And the hope here is that whether or not politicians come around, at least the people, capital P people in this country begin to see those dynamics and begin to connect that to political decisions as far as which, even just which media they, they engage in, which politicians they take seriously at all, regardless of whether they vote for them, just who are they seeing as serious actors and who are they seeing as people who are just a part of this whole machine. So I think that's the hope here. And that's why it's important for, you know, this reporting to be reaching all these people who are sort of becoming potentially politicized by this um, and to, for those folks to not be potentially, you know, wrapped up in bad faith conservative attacks on this or, or just conspiratorial um, descriptions of what's already a pretty in our face conspiracy. You report that Norfolk Southern has been tasked to clean up the mess after an initial $25,000 donation to the community. The company said they would give $1,000 inconvenience checks to residents within the evacuation zone. The company also has offered to reimburse expense receipts for residents within East Palestine. Do you know how the local community reacted to this level of compensation, this compensation plan from Norfolk Southern? Did they Were they grateful that they were being given at least something, or did they see this as kind of, you know, shut up money? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I think initially in the, the first few days after the derailment, the big headline was definitely the $25,000 donation to the community. Um, and rightly so anyone who saw that was just shocked um because that's just bananas 
Um, I think as many people point out, that's about five bucks per person in the community. Um, I think what, from my communication with the company, they framed it as an initial donation um, within the first 12 hours to help set up a, um, a sort of response center. Um, and then they proceeded to say they would give the $1,000 inconvenience checks to those within the one mile evacuation zone note that. And then furthermore, offer those expense receipt reimbursements for those within city limits broadly. Um, but, you know, from my reporting and, and again, the wonderful reporting from many others, um, it became more apparent that not only was, you know, many people finding these reimbursements to not necessarily be, you know, adequate, um, it was also quite a difficult to redeem these uh, reimbursements and B um, on the thousand dollar inconvenience checks. Those were again, just initially were doled out within the evacuation zone of the mile radius from the incident site. And, you know, for those who are in the community, that just felt <laughs> extremely arbitrary. Um, and for anyone just reading these stories, it's arbitrary because there were numerous individuals that I talked to, you know, last week as I was writing that first story that, you know, they were one, two, three, five, even 10 to 15 miles out of community and were very much experiencing symptoms that were all kind of a part of a larger pattern of, of you know, these respiratory issues, these skin reactions, these issues that are not simply just, you know, emblematic of the common cold or a potential stress reaction to, you know, a traumatic incident in your community. Um, and so now um, in, in recent days, the company has expanded those checks to uh, be within city limits, I believe, and then have continued offering those reimbursements. Um, but again, another aspect of this, as I was kind of alluding to, is that redeeming these reimbursements have not proved to be easy. Um, when I was initially reporting out that first big story, uh, folks had reported three to four hour waits because there was only one specific um, community family assistance center that the company, you know, sort of put up. And so, you know, obviously this is hundreds up to thousands of folks that were waiting to receive compensation. And what was framed, you know, by the company as a pretty simple process, at least on paper, was not necessarily the case on the ground because these residents would have to go, you know, wait three to four hours in line and then just be told they had to go get more documents. Um, which, you know, just like with most things in this country, the idea of, of course, in this instance, it, it wasn't means testing income levels, but it was still sort of means testing and putting a bar as to how we are doling out necessary and needed benefits to people. Um, you know, when you're a $55 billion company, I think if we're going to talk about cost benefit analysis is, I think the cost of making folks wait three to four hours just to get a potential $1,000 check for their lives being upended versus just, you know, saying, all right, whoever comes here can redeem their checks um, or, you know, just have an ID or like one document rather than numerous. I, I would say that's probably enough. Um, but so all that is to say is that even just the act of receiving what was for some people, you know, good compensation for others, it was certainly not enough. Just the act of receiving it, even that alone was difficult. Um, one specific example I think is worth mentioning is, is this was uh, someone who I talked about in the story, Andrew Belden, who her two-year-old cat, um, sadly, her health quickly, or his health rather, quickly deteriorated after the derailment and just such 
awful, awful ways. Um, he was lying motionless. His heart was racing. His breathing was labored. Uh, this poor cat, you know, he was found to have congestive heart failure, you know, fluid around his heart and lungs. His liver enzymes were, if I remember correctly, 690% higher than what a cat's liver enzymes should be. He just wasn't moving, he wasn't eating or drinking, just deeply depressing to hear. And, you know, Miss Belden, she found that she, to continue treatment with the veterinarian, she would have had to come up with another 18,000 bucks. And despite the company saying that they were in fact giving, you know, expense receipt uh, reimbursements related to the uh, emergency, they said they would possibly entertain this compensation in the future, which for medical treatment, you, you can't wait for the future. And so Belden, she couldn't afford to continue the treatment and she had to make the choice to put that poor cat to sleep. And she still owed some 9,000 bucks for the treatment he did get. Um, and so that was what I reported last week. And I followed up with Miss um, Belden after the company, you know, reached out and asked for more details about, you know, this individual, Miss Belden, and about, you know, the, the expenses she had incurred. So they were able to connect. And from what Miss Belden told me, she was still yet again instructed to just go to the center and then, you know, she would get taken care of, presumably. Um, and she went back. And of course, there were more hour-long waits. Naturally, you know, all these folks are still trying to take care of themselves and get their duly owed compensation. So she still hasn't received remediation for this, despite, you know, the story coming out, despite the natural outrage by people to hear the story. The company's choice, from what Andrew told me, was just to direct her to the center, which as I've described and as others have described as well, just isn't necessarily cutting it. You write that it didn't have to be this way. Norfolk Southern is among the gargantuan rail companies that have lobbied against a myriad of industry improvements, like updating the same braking system that failed in East Palestine. Rail workers who just had a rail contract imposed upon them had already warned about how corporate malfeasance could lead to a disaster like this. A nearly identical crash happened in New Jersey in 2012 when a Norfolk Southern train carrying vinyl chloride derailed. Many community members reported similar symptoms at the time to those in East Palestine. Some had symptoms even years later. So Norfolk Southern had already experienced this kind of crash and workers had already warned them about it. In your opinion, then, is this willful ignorance leading to purposeful, even criminal negligence? I think that's exactly the right question. And I think the stakes of you know that passage you just read is for us to wonder, do we live in a government system, in a democracy that responds to the people's concern? Is this a government for the people, by the people? Because if we are to be in a society, in a country where these things keep happening again, whether it's mass shootings, whether it's climate-induced catastrophe, whether it's corporate malfeasance that leads to just human and animal and natural suffering, which also have secondary and tertiary consequences. I mean, the concerns of, of the riverbeds and the soil will continue for years. If those keep happening, while people clearly suffer and while people who don't suffer express deep human empathetic concerns for those people and worry for that to happen to them. 
and that doesn't change. This is definitionally not a country that fulfills its illusion of being a democracy. And I think that is something that is, a, you know, not a complicated or too much of a hot take, but I think it's something for people to more deeply internalize. Um, and that certainly should not, in my opinion, disenchant people because the only hope for that promise to be fulfilled is for there to be hope maintained despite the fact that it's not been fulfilled yet. Um, if not for our own sake, for any other potential person in this country that might face an issue like this in the future, because as this story shows, and as the rail workers themselves have essentially said in, in their own words, this will continue to happen. Whether it's specifically a train derailment or something like it, or just a broader catastrophe caused by corporations continuing to be able to pay to play around and just chase profit and have human dignity and human protection be their secondary concern, if a concern at all. Um, so I think that is a big takeaway for me here when we think about how it didn't have to be this way, how, how we should respond to it, how we should think about our own role and our own concern with regards to this issue and how deeply offensive and deeply vulgar it is for companies like Norfolk Southern, but all of its peers, all the peer industries and all the peer companies that continue to lobby away our government to continue behaving this way. That is not something that we should accept at all. You write in a uh, point to a letter to Southern uh, Norfolk Southern last week. The EPA noted that areas of contaminated soil and free liquids were observed and potentially covered and or filled during reconstruction of the rail line, including portions of the trench burn pit that was used for the open burn off of vinyl chloride. The agency noted other toxic chemicals, including butyl acrylate, ethyl hexyl acrylate, ethylene glycol monobutyl ether are also uh, continuing to be released into the air, soil and water. So why are people being told it's safe to return before Norfolk Southern completes the necessary cleaning still left to be done? So in, in your opinion, why send back why send people back home when there is not only a potential public health threat, but increased liability for Norfolk Southern or even for the local government? Why would they send people back home when it wasn't safe? Because that's not a good idea, not just for public health, but it's not a good idea for Norfolk Southern's bottom line. Yeah, I mean, that's the question, isn't it? And I think earlier on, if local officials and, and specifically the company, I think was much more eager to sort of declare it to be safe to return to kind of see if they could avoid the much warranted media focus that is now on this incident. Um, and, you know, I do want to be personally cautious of like necessarily blaming individual EPA or, or government officials or, or regulators who are indeed trying to do their job, who either are just sort of below a broader incompetent sort of bureaucracy or um, are kind of a part of a, you know, regular that in fact allowed initial reports to just come from Norfolk Southern Commission tests. Um, and another aspect of this here is that it very well could be that, you know, some air or water tests in momentary instances do come back safe. Um, like it is in fact possible after talking to, you know, some different environmental experts that 
in certain moments or just throughout different parts of the community, those tests could come back at safe or relatively safe levels. I think the key aspect that we should be focusing on is all of the runoff potential pollution that is, again, in the soil, has been observed in waterways um, that either aren't being tested or, you know, for example, soil specifically, those tests are still ongoing and have not been released to the public yet. Um, and so while some tests might genuinely come back as safe, there are plenty of other places to be testing and to be also making sure we're doing as much granular testing as possible. Um, even, you know, down to people's furniture, because this stuff can, you know, soak into the environment around them. Um, so to me, it, it certainly was a mistake to deem it to be safe to return for folks, especially that soon. Um, because of course I, and as many other people do, we, we hope these people can go back to their lives and go back to a normal community and feel safe. But if that's not the case, then they shouldn't be led to believe that to be such. And I think the bottom line here is that while there's so much confusion, while some tests have deemed it to be safe, but some other tests are still ongoing. And while it was noted that the company may have contaminated soil um, and waterways, if, if there is that much confusion, there doesn't need to be a rush to bring these people back. And instead, the government, again, if the government was more stronger in its response, and if Ohio officials allowed the federal government to come in sooner, we could have hopefully gotten these folks more compensation, more accommodations to not feel pressured to come back so soon. Um, because, of course, you know, a lot of these residents don't want to, you know, hurt themselves or poison themselves or their families or their neighbors and friends. But it's it's hard to both just logistically and financially uproot yourself. And it's also a community that you might have lived in for years. Your family might have lived in for years and generations. So. There's a lot here in terms of people's personal connection to community they love, and also whether or not they're able to stave off returning until it hopefully is safe again. Most of the interviews I have seen, and most of the coverage I have seen around the East Palestine, Ohio uh, disaster have been uh, pretty simplistic, and so I want you to clear them up for me. The way in which they are often packaged, if you will, is Obama was a hero when President Obama was a hero when it comes to railway safety. President Trump was the villain, and President Biden is doing the best he can do. This is, seems to be putting all of the onus on the Trump administration. And while they certainly bear responsibility and they deserve accountability, what is missed when we have that framing? Obama hero, Trump villain, and Biden's doing his best. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good question. I'm glad to bring it up because, as you know, I mean, the Republican Party and Trump specifically certainly has much to answer for. And I think every in-depth story that seeks to tell the story should make sure that they are telling that aspect because plenty of bad faith actors have just mainly focused this on the biden administration but to your point as well obama is not necessarily here i mean to be clear it was a good regulation for sure um but that doesn't necessarily inherently make him a hero for you know plenty of other potential deregulatory paths he might have gone down um, or just the lack of other regulation elsewhere um but to biden's administration I think you're exactly right that this and as many people, including especially shout out to the lever, David Schroeder's the lever doing such great reporting. Um, 
the Biden administration has power to change this. They are the administration in office. They are, you know, controlling these federal agencies, such as the Department of Transportation under people who judge that can, in many different creative ways, try to, of course, address the reinstatement of the rule that Trump overturned regarding updating brakes for trains carrying hazardous materials, but also just to start putting together a much stronger regulatory regime on industries like the railroads. And I do sympathize with sort of people who are in the nitty gritty of policy who maybe just like work on writing policy and have kind of worked in drafting policy or rulemaking for years who might just be staffers who say, you know, it can be complicated or difficult. Um, but you have to start the process. And also to the point of reinstating rules, reinstating rules is slightly different than necessarily the broader rulemaking process of starting from scratch and doing all sorts of analyses beyond just cost benefit analyses to enact a rule. This was a rule that was in place then was overturned because of a cost benefit analysis, you know, done under Trump. Um, that was the justification to do so. But this is something that can be reinstated, restarted, um, and put forward to show that at least the government cares. And again, also, it's 2023 now. President Biden was elected two years ago, or more than that, I should say. And so this process could have began earlier and, in fact, could have been close, if not completed. Um, so at this point, of course, we can't look backwards definitionally in terms of trying to fix this, but we can do something right now. The best time to do something yesterday, the best time to do something was yesterday. The second best time is right now. And so I'm glad to see that there are lots of outlets across the spectrum pressuring the Department of Transportation to act. Um, it does seem that in recent days, um, Secretary Buttigieg has finally expressed um, a stronger interest in doing things, um, which is exciting and good. It's, it is quite shocking that he, among many politicians, but he specifically being the Secretary of Transportation, taking so long to speak on it and taking especially so long to speak authoritatively on it, that's not encouraging, especially because, to his credit, he is someone who in the past has done his efforts to you know, appear on Fox News and put forth an argument about how democratic governance can be stronger and can be better and can offer the people of this country a better vision and a better life. Um, but in terms of actually doing that, it hasn't been encouraging so far. So hopefully in the, in the past few days, you know, what he is expressing is earnest and is something that not only he will try to do, but will encourage Biden and, and the rest of the administration to really rally around. Because I think another aspect of this beyond just the simple fact that they do have the power vested in them to act on this, they also have the power vested in them to use their bully pulpit, use the fact that the people in this country voted for them to rally support and to ensure that whatever opposition might come, whether it's from the industry, whether it's from any conservative politicians um, who might stand in the way, to call them out, to show that, look, these folks are in the way of getting this done. And I think it's just malpractice to not use this moment where so many people in this country all over are rightfully concerned, are rightfully scared, are rightfully just wondering what the government will do to take this moment and to show that, in fact, this government can and will do something about it.
We are speaking with associate writer for Breaking News at the New Republic, Prem Thacker, who has been reporting on the East Palestine, Ohio train derailment. You can follow Prem on Twitter, and I suggest that you do at Prem underscore Thacker. In another article that you wrote, after train derailment, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine says, I'm not seeing any problems. You write, most of Congress and the entire Biden administration is at fault here. Only a select, largely progressive group of lawmakers stuck by rail workers last year as they vied for reasonable work conditions warned of disasters like this one occurring and the rest of congress including the president imposed an inadequate contract on rail workers nationwide how much was that strike about worker safety because when you not just worker safety but public safety because when you go back and look at the reporting on the strike the only issue especially as it was reported on fox news but just not not only just Fox News Channel, you saw the same thing on CNN, MSNBC, ABC, NBC, CBS, wherever you were watching news, was whether the workers would get a 24% wage increase over five years and maybe additional days for sick leave. There, When I was looking back at all of the reporting, there was nothing about their demands for worker safety. So how much was that strike about safety and do you think the reason that the strike was stopped was because of the focus on the wage increase yeah no that's a wonderful question this is something you know in our earlier reporting we tried to communicate as much as we could that this strike was about a lot more than just what was already you know warranted concerns for these workers um but as you mentioned beyond just asking for paid sick leave which these workers shockingly don't have um, especially given how many chemicals they happen to be around um, and the wage increase, is that they were asking for very structural practices to be changed, to be modified, to ensure that not only they would be safe, not only would their you know, trains go smoothly, but just broader safety practices for the public around them. Um, one aspect of this was to push back against um, this business practice called precision scheduled railroading. Um, and this practice, which you know some workers have uh, lovingly called positive shareholder reaction, is a practice where train companies um, make the trains longer, more, more carts, um, less staffers, uh, cutting jobs, they consolidate uh, you know, train dispatch centers. And resultantly, this overall just makes trains less safe. Um, there used to be a time where there were much more than two workers on the train, you know, six, five workers. Now it's slowly going down to the point now where we have three or two workers on um, a lot of these trains. And so you can imagine in, in this sort of practice where it's literally called precision scale to railroading, you can imagine just the, the time pressure to just go, 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 to move the cargo, you know, chase the bottom line for these bosses um, with less and less workers. That also means you have less workers sort of on staff for emergencies like this. Thank goodness, you know, these three workers were able to do as much as they could to try to, you know, stop further damage. Um, but they also have less workers to have, you know, the capacity and even just time to just check the train cars and make sure that things look okay. So that was one aspect that these workers were really, you know, coming out against quite loudly, in fact. That was a big part of their demands. Um, another aspect that, of this was um, specifically their calls to ensure that trains would at least have two people on a crew, a minimum at, at all times. Um, and that's shocking to think of because, you know, logically speaking, um, that 
uh, connects to the fact that some of these companies have been, in fact, lobbying to have one-person crews for these trains, which, mind you, minimum have 100 cards, can have, you know, 150. I mean, this one had about, I think, 141, making, but they can get even much higher than that. And so imagining one person managing all those cards, even two alone, that sounds difficult enough. That's remarkably concerning. And so to your point, it is possible that, you know, these workers might have um, gotten sold short by the media only focusing on their own concerns. But conversely, I think the Biden administration towards the end of that story and to, to, right before they chose to impose the contract, there was a lot of pressure on the administration still. There was, I think, a decent amount of um, public sympathy for these workers because their own um, conditions seemed tough enough. And I think people, largely speaking, if they heard about the story, they'd say, oh, yeah, like they should not be getting screwed over like this. It's a pretty normal assessment of the situation. And despite even that pressure alone, they were still you know, willing to impose this contract on them. So I think it is possible that if these more broader public concerns were also communicated and, and got through to the media, perhaps um, that would have put even more pressure on the administration. It's just hard to say because there was already so much that they didn't respond to here when they didn't take the worker's side here. The bill to stop the railway strike passed 290 to 137 in the House and 80 to 15 in the Senate. So it's not like this was a vote completely along partisan lines, although 211 Democrats in Congress voted to end the strike compared to 79 Republicans. You point out that Ohio governor and other officials should embrace what we've come to see yet again is true. The government must do much more to protect the dignity and welfare of its people. Do you believe both sides of the aisle are currently not protecting the dignity and welfare of the people and instead are protecting massive profits for corporations? Yeah, I think that is probably the case. I mean, again, it, it need not be fully equated to say that oh, Democrats and Republicans are the same. But I think we're all sort of able to see that, again, the common denominator that stops you know, even Democrats from, I think, doing what they ought to do if they are indeed actual Democrats is the conservative ideology that dogs them either personally, you know, they might just be personally conservative, or um, they're just listening to their donors. Um, and so resultantly, despite those differences, that creates, again, this broader governmental system that is not respecting the dignity of the people. Um, I think one sort of good number to keep in mind here is that, um, amongst the rail industry's donations to politicians, it is largely bipartisan. And though it does historically, and even to this day, generally tend to be tilted towards Republicans, Democrats are still getting plenty of dollars from these companies, as you know, most politicians get money from lots of different companies and lots of different industries. Um, and this is just another example of that. Um, but a specific aspect of this that is concerning is that almost half the Republicans on the Senate committee that deals with, you know, commerce, science, and transportation received money from Norfolk Southern in 2022. And nearly half of, you know, both Republicans and Democrats on the 65-member House committee, so that's, you know, over 30 members in this committee that deals with transportation and infrastructure, also received money from this company. Um, so this is both 
I think, an exhibit of how pervasive the rail industry is in Congress overall. And I think also as a broader exhibit of how corporate power generally, you know, pervades Congress that just as we are, you know, used to shrugging our, not necessarily shrugging our shoulders, but knowing that the next mass shooting or the next climate catastrophe is to come largely in part because of the way corporations related to those industries pervade our government and prevent us from taking action. We can now understand this to also be a part of that dynamic. Um, and so again, knowing that, knowing that the constancy of all of these travesties are from that sort of dynamic, the question is how will we respond? Because if we are to hopefully respond, which I think is possible with some actual meaningful regulation on the rail industry, that then shows us that there is a similar response possible for those aforementioned um, corporate inflamed disasters. You write that many uh, residents that the New Republic spoke with in and outside of the one-mile radius reported similar symptoms, headaches, burning sensations, severe dehydration, and more. But the town's nearly 5,000 residents are left unsure about who qualifies for what support in the face of these ailments, left with little guidance from local officials and increasing reports of health concerns, paranoia, and distrust is growing in the community, especially after authorities last week, or this is earlier in uh, February, arrested a journalist mm. covering the derailment. People now lean on the internet and mutual support while feeling as if the government is not helping and instead just referring them to the goodwill of a corporation. Is this combination, because you touched on conspiracy theories earlier, we're going to get to those conspiracy theories in a moment, but is this combination of a lack of support and the arrest of a journalist feeding that paranoia, causing that paranoia? Because as I was saying, you've written about these conspiracy theories that the far right is distributing related to the derailment theories we'll, we'll get to. But is the lack of government care causing conspiracy theories? Yeah, I would say so. And I think, of course, it, it, it's, you know, too reductive for me to just say, oh, you know, if the government was better, no one would have conspiracies. You know, of course, that's not true. But I think naturally, when people incur and face a disaster, and afterwards, when it appears, especially in the immediate sense that they feel that they're not being heard, and then in the longer term sense, just continue feeling unsure, not just about what support they qualify for, but how much care there really is for them and, and um, communities like them. Naturally, you know, anyone might start to think, you know, what's going on here? Um, and unfortunately, as you know, see, you say we'll get to, a lot of this can turn into very ugly, very non-productive ways of looking at what's going on but it, it really does go to show that if the government is you know sort of earnest sincere kind of entity that does want to do its job and to you know also earn support from people then it ought to for its own self-interest and it's for it's for its own self-sustainment do its job and, and care for people because as you say um, and as you're kind of alluding to here, if the government does not do that, it is more and more possible for folks to feel alienated, to feel left behind, to feel disenchanted, and to, at a basic level, just feel hurt and to feel that they need to channel those feelings and channel those um, emotions of confusion and pain and suffering into something that can at least give them certainty or an answer as to why they're not being helped. And oftentimes that will lead to some form of an anti-government anti 
not just establishment, I think, yeah, just broader anti-government sort of mindset. And so, again, if you are, if the government is an entity that wants to be respected and want to be, wants to be trusted, it has to do its job to earn that trust in very simple terms. In the, another article, The Conspiracy of the Ohio Train Derailment is right in front of us. You uh, write that as residents try to navigate the unprecedented situation, seeking support from their neighbors and from Facebook groups, disinformation is flourishing. Conspiracy theorists online appear less concerned with the actual residents' turmoil and more with using them to advance narratives that foster social distrust of government and even of each other, other people. Yet many residents have, in fact, relied on each of other while uh, hoping for a stronger, not weaker, government response. So the conspiracy theorists are pushing for less government while the people on the ground are desperate to have more government. How effective is this kind of exploitation of a crisis when it comes to undermining any collective response, whether it's by the government or locals? What effect do conspiracy theories have on this idea that, I know it's a dumb cliche, of we are all in this together especially during times of crisis? Certainly. I mean, it's a cliche, but that also means it's used often and it should be used often. Um, I think that is a very basic guiding principle that you know ought to be instructing the government, especially, as you said, in crises like these. I think there's two buckets here to this question. There's how these theories and theorists interact with their broader public who either became to learn about this incident through those the theorists, um, or, you know, just have been following them and learning more about them through them. Or the second bucket would be the actual residents on the ground who, as, as you know, I write, they're hoping for a stronger, not weaker government response, and they're relying on each other happily. Um, so to the former bucket about those who are learning of this incident or learning more about it through these theorists, it's very difficult because... These people, of course, are not physically in the community, so they're not physically experiencing exactly what is going on here. And so every part of what's going on is sort of filtered through this lens. And the issue is, is that particularly earlier on, a lot of these theorists were able to kind of get in on time, so to speak, and then become the loudest voices and, and purport themselves to be authorities on this issue. And I mean, even if you just go back and scroll through you know, all these different posts, You'll see they have you know millions of people looking at them, hundreds of thousands of you know shares and responses and whatnot. So quickly, you know those start to become the sort of uh, beacon, sort of lighthouse that people go to as the signal of like where they should look for more information. And so, you know, I was personally dismayed to see a lot of you know pretty you know run of the mill reporters or you know media figures kind of sharing posts from some of these figures without realizing exactly who they were, which, you know, I mean, it's easy to do that. There's no fault there. It's just more, it's very concerning to give these people even more authority. Um, because again, they're a not conveying the experience of the residents adequately, because as, as you mentioned, they're, um, you know, sort of putting forward this kind of anti-government, uh, sentiment rather than the people themselves hoping for a stronger government. They're also acting as a pipeline to then other unrelated content that also kind of falls within this broader sort of suspicious, distrustful of the government kind of umbrella, whether it's anything from implying Damar Hamlin, you know, the football player who had that horrifying, scary um, incident on the field, 
implying he's, you know, been replaced with a doppelganger. Um, you know, so very nutty things like that to, you know, more just general anti-vaccine content or, or, you know, other posts kind of that are transphobic or racist and whatnot, you know, just run of the mill, awful gross things. Um, so that's one bucket. That's one concern there. The second bucket, of course, is, is the residents themselves who, A, their narratives start to get co-opted by these people. And B, you know, as I've been, I've been a member of a lot of these Facebook groups, as I've been talking to a lot of folks um, in the community and kind of just seeing, you know, what's on their mind. And as you scroll through them, not only do you, you know, get a real sense of just the pain and suffering they're feeling, but also you start to see some of these posts here and there from people, you know, whether or not, I, I don't know which media they engage with before, and I don't care. I just care about their welfare, but they start to post some of these, um, you know, co- these uh, posts from these different conspiracy theorists, because again, while they're scrolling Twitter, while they're scrolling Facebook, those people do appear to be either the authority on this, or if nothing else, the people who cared about it earlier on than the big mainstream media. And so even within the community, um, you start to see some of these theorists pop up. And not only then do you see this dynamic of these bad faith actors co-opting these narratives, they begin to then sort of exploit these people themselves and kind of feed them sort of what they should be feeling rather than just listening to them and trying to communicate, you know, how they're feeling. Um, so it's, it's a sour bucket and it's something that I, and, you know, many people are concerned with just because as I, you know, tried to describe in the piece, the conspiracy is right in front of us. If you want to call it, you know, that term, um, you don't need to look for this sort of deeper, sinister, unseeable dynamic, um, because although, you know, some of these uh, features of capitalism and corporate-driven politics are sort of unseen, I think they're being put on display here. And I think, you know, the work of, you know, us at the New Republic and, and the American Prospect, the Lever, and other really good outlets are trying to show that, um, or trying to show those dynamics and to reveal them to not be unseen, to be the actual conspiracy right in front of us. Well, I've got one last question for you, Prem. Actually, I have... 35 more questions for you, but <laughs> we don't have that much time, unfortunately. I hear you. Uh, so um, we are, we've been speaking with associate writer for Breaking News at the New Republic, Prem Thacker. You can follow Prem on Twitter at Prem underscore Thacker, T-H-A-K-K-E-R. So our final question for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell. It's the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience <laughs> might hate your response. You were just talking about okay. the, the conspiracy that is in front of us. Yesterday, it was reported that the major shareholders of Norfolk Southern are the Vanguard Group Incorporated, BlackRock Fund Advisors, and State Street Global Advisors, which are also the major shareholders of... CNN, Fox News, ABC News, NBC News, and CBS News. While the Washington Post is doing, and as you were pointing out, the Lever is doing exceptional coverage, but the Lever is, you know, an alternative source as opposed to the mainstream Washington Post, doing exceptional coverage of East Palestine. Many outlets are being criticized for not doing enough reporting on the story. How much do you believe that ownership of both Norfolk Southern and these media outlets is affecting the derailments coverage in the media? Is there a bipartisan government, media, corporate, industrial complex that is ultimately responsible? And is that the conspiracy that's in front of us? It's a good question. Um, And I think, you know, I'm still 
newer to the journalism scene in terms of my career. But from what I've seen from my experiences from, you know, talking to other journalists and trying to just, you know, learn more about the lay of the land and just, of course, as a newsreader myself, I think similarly to the sort of thesis of this story is that it, I, I don't know per se, I mean, I guess I have been in like the boardrooms, I guess, but I don't know if it's a necessarily like a sort of like dark room where, you know, these uh, companies kind of walk in and say like, this is the headline for the day for this story. Um, but I also don't think it's not, not the case. I mean, you know, you look at some outlets that are, I mean, the classic example is of, you know, some outlets that are sponsored by, you know, Exxon or BP or whatever, insert fossil fuel company name that like headline specific climate and energy policy adjacent stories. I mean, that, you know, right in your face is kind of like, well, I, I don't know if that's, you know, necessarily um, exactly what's going on in energy policy or in the climate space. Um, so I think it's sort of, you know, toward, toward the latter half of your question, just this broader dynamic where all these interests are just so intersected and intertwined where there can be plenty of really good reporters at all these outlets. And then I think, you know, that is true that, you know, all these big box outlets probably do have very good climate and environmental reporters, very good labor reporters and so on. And, you know, civil rights reporters, you name it. Many things we know about the hell of our world is because of these, you know, beautiful, amazing journalists. But at the same time, they are, and especially potentially as you get up the ladder, constricted by certain capital interests, whether it's, you know, just, you know, shying away from certain stories that, you know, might not, you know, fly well with this sponsor or that donor um, to, you know, some newsrooms might have more specific editorial direction on how we cover X, Y, and Z. So I do think it is very much a dynamic. I personally, just from my own experience, not because I don't know if it's true or not, don't know if it's like fully just, you know, insert billionaire here, you know, calling up the editor of so-and-so magazine um, on a daily basis. But I mean, just in the same way that our government so often falls short of doing things because of the myriad of ways corporate corporate interest is entrenched within it. I mean, the media is equally a part of that in, in many ways. So I think it is very good to, I think always when we're engaging with media, hold a certain level of, of a critical lens and not necessarily distrust, but just, you know, a desire to not take things at face value. I think it's also important to, you know, appreciate individual journalists within the, that bubble that are trying their best, just as, you know, we ourselves are within this broader bubble of, you know, rabid capitalism trying our best. Um, and I think most importantly, it's very important to support, you know, strong independent outlets um, like the Lever, you know, uh, I, I'd like to say like the New Republic as well, uh, that are, you know, trying our best to really point out the contradictions of our time and show that we really can and should demand so much better for ourselves and for all the people around us. And a couple of uh, past guests on our show, Julia Rock and Rebecca Burns, are doing really great work over at the Lever. Prem, thank you so much for being on our show. This has been unlike any other conversation I have heard about this derailment anywhere. So I really appreciate it. We have been speaking with associate writer for Breaking News at the New Republic, Prem Thacker. You should follow Prem on Twitter at Prem underscore Thacker, T-H-A-K-K-E-R. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you so much. Take care and be well, okay? Thank you. The end is nigh, and this is hell, and with Russia... Now leaving the final nuclear weapons treaty with the United States, the end is nigher.
than it was earlier today. Lindsay, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far, despite the fact that I forgot to share the question from hell on social media. We'll see how the listeners are responding. Um, (laughs) Let's see. Let's see. This question from hell is, where do you see yourself in five years? Okay. And if it's one more person saying the mirror, (laughs) my head is going to explode. Ah, yes. The mirror. The mirror. I hope you can see yourself in the mirror in five Five years. years. Because if you can't, it means you're either dead or a vampire. Or you're staring at the wall. (laughs) It's possible. You think it's a mirror. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I don't see anything on Facebook yet. I know we got, like, another response on um, Patreon that I can go look. Let's see here. Yeah, um, you said there was a link that somebody posted. Oh, I forgot about that. I still haven't investigated, but I suppose I can. It's a YouTube video. No, <laughs> we'll, we'll wait on that one then. If it's a YouTube video, who the hell knows? I just knows got a copy and paste it. But we did get another response from Tynan S. Okay. Who said, where do you see yourself in five years? Tynan S is restocking shelves at the Guantanamo Bay gift shop. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a good one. Wow. <laughs> I wonder what they sell there at the Guantanamo Bay gift shop. I love that this is this gets to get air on the radio, just these things. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell will win your choice of whatever This Is Hell stuff you want. You can see all of our stuff at This Is Hell. Dot com. Any other responses that you want to share? We- well, that's the only one, but I did copy and paste that link, and it took me to a video on YouTube called Opening to Future War from Terminator 2 Judgment Day <laughs> okay. Remastered. It's only a three-minute video. I guess it's the opening of this movie. Yeah, I don't okay. know. I haven't seen it. So. Yeah, I can't remember the beginning of Terminator 2. I was really high, surprisingly. <laughs> Going to see a Terminator movie, why would you be really high to do such a thing? Hey, you want to hear a story about how my grandfather died in a train car? Um, I, do I have a choice? <laughs> no, you could, yes, you have to say it now. It's, we're on air. Uh, he worked for Grand Trunk Railroad in Detroit. He was a foreman and a switch operator, but he also like worked inside of the freight cars, and he was in a freight car that had huge slabs of beef you know cows basically on these gigantic hooks yeah i see that every single tuesday basically these but there's this butcher shop over here they open up their truck and there are these <laughs> Farm cow carcasses hanging out the sides of their <laughs> truck it's like every tuesday i'm like they're lucky like i'm lucky i'm not like a vegan and that <laughs> and that place is uh, really intense because they always order the exact right amount of meat every day and they always run out every day so there's never any waste it's really incredible yeah i went in there once and i was like wow that butcher counter is very busy i guess it's like a halal yeah butchery. and people know about it all over the world uh, vijay prashad who was has been a show on our uh, a guest on our show several times he i said uh, he said he's come to the neighborhood and i said uh, well, where do you go? And he goes, oh, I go to this butcher shop that I, I can't tell you on the air because I don't want people to know about it. And I said, is it Farm City? And he went quiet really <laughs> fast. Wow. Pretty funny. The more you know. See, I didn't know. I didn't know. And I'm right over here. But back to your Train stories. So my grandfather goes into this train car and the train car 
is moving and he's with all these huge slabs of meat and all of a sudden they hit the brakes and all of the meat comes flying towards him and crushes him. I had a feeling it was going to be that. And then he refused to see the doctor because oh, that's no. the way people used to be. Instantly. No, he died of internal bleeding a few weeks later. Oh, no. Because he just refused to go see the doctor. Well, he was killed by red meat, I guess <laughs> you could say. See? Look how bad meat is for you. Lindsay, <laughs> what's Jeff's moment of truth this week about? Oh, man, I have to say Roald Dahl again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Jeff kicks Roald Dahl. I can't say it. <laughs> Jeff kicks Roald Dahl again while he's down. Best time to kick somebody. What you said last time, somebody could kick you while... They kick you. I mean, they could also kick you while they're down. Down, I guess. But I. Not as it's well. It's funny you said that, though, because one time when I was a kid, I tried to kick my twin sister who tried to kick me at the same time, and I ended up breaking my. T- like, I think I broke my toe. I don't know. <laughs> That's pretty. So, twins kicking each other at the exact same time. I'd like to get a video of that. I wouldn't. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, that's just what happened. That, that's what people. Do you have twin telepathy? It's more like that. <laughs> It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory. This week in Rotten History on February 19th, 1972. 51 years ago this week on New York City's Lower East Side, the great jazz trumpeter Lee Morgan was performing at the Notorious Nightclub. Oh, Notorious Nightclub. I want to go. Known as Slug's Saloon. And that's a great name, so it sounds awesome. And had also hosted performances by Charles Mingus, Ornette Coleman, Albert Ayler, Sun Ra, and countless others. Morgan, who had come up through bands led by Art Blakey and John Coltrane, was regarded as a bright new star. And one of his tunes, The Sidewinder, had even crossed over to the pop and R&B charts. And I want to go find The Sidewinder online to hear that song and see if I actually recognize it. But while Slug Saloon had become a magnet for adventurous musicians eager to try out their most challenging ideas, the club also had a reputation for danger. Stories abounded of patrons openly dealing drugs, that's not so dangerous, pulling guns in arguments, okay, now that's dangerous, and returning to their cars after closing, uh, only to find their tires gone. So people were stealing tires from the parking lot. It had gotten so bad that the original owners, afraid to go to their own club, had sold it to one of the bouncers. But the clientele at Slug's Saloon included such famous names as Miles Davis, and even on at least one occasion, Salvador Dali. Okay, I'm, I'm liking the Slug's Saloon more and more. Meanwhile, although Morgan's career had been severely derailed by his addiction to hard drugs, He was now working again, thanks in large part to a woman named Helen Moore, who had rescued him from Skid Row, taken him in, bought back his pawned instruments, and put him in decent new clothes. Though they were not officially married, Helen had even adopted Morgan's last name. But once Morgan was working again, he began cheating on her and had finally dumped her for a new girlfriend. On this February night, during a major snowstorm, the 33-year-old Morgan was on the bandstand with his quartet, and Helen Moore arrived at the club. The two got into a loud argument that escalated into slapping and shoving. Finally, Helen pulled out a handgun from her purse and shot Morgan in the chest. Morgan was loaded into an ambulance, still alive, 
But as the ambulance crept fitfully through heavy snow and traffic, he lost so much blood that he died before reaching the hospital. A few months later, amid a wave of bad publicity, Slug Saloon closed down for good, and Helen Moore, convicted of second-degree manslaughter, would be out of per, uh, parole, out on parole within just a few years. Maybe I don't want to go to a place called Slug Saloon. After all, it sounds great, aside from the gunplay, and who wants to play with guns anyways, aside from complete dicks who are very small in that department. Also in Rotten History on February 25th, 1983, 40 years ago this week, the renowned playwright Tennessee Williams was found dead in his New York hotel suite. Hey, Rotten History, two for two on New York deaths. First reports in the media said that Williams, aged 72, had choked to death and that a small plastic cap of the type used for pills or nasal spray had been found stuck in his windpipe. But people close to Williams called that story a fabrication by the coroner's office, and it was soon revealed that the actual autopsy report attributed Williams' death to an overdose of secanol, a powerful barbiturate. It was known that Williams had been a heavy user of secanol, amphetamines, and other prescription drugs for many years, but apparently he just had a taste for speed. Now that's rotten history. And this is Hal Lindsay, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell. Journalist Carrie Leiderson returns to talk about her In These Times article, The Case for Nationalizing the Railroads. I know we don't usually do the same topic two days in a row, but this is such a big story, and Carrie writes about it in a very different way from Prem, so we're going to be talking about the derailment again tomorrow. There's poison everywhere. <laughs> we got to do something fast. Maybe that should be the uh, new tagline. There's poison everywhere, and this is hell. <laughs> yes, I think it's pretty good. Uh, and, of course, Jeff Dorchin, Moment of Truth. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz thanks to Lindsay Gorey for producing our home station WNUR strives to provide a forum for underrepresented music and ideas by promoting musicians musical genres news public affairs issues and athletic events often overlooked by major media outlets support completely commercial free independent college radio by visiting wnur.org donate to see all the donation tiers and how you can get stuff like uh, well you might just Get a surprise, which would be maybe a vintage sticker, a postcard, a fridge magnet, or an airwaves for your hairwave CD. There's also the WNUR die cut sticker by Northwestern artist Hannah Boroshov, the WNUR short sleeve t shirt by another Northwestern artist. Cora Pancoast, the uh, classic WNUR orange beanie, the WNUR tote bag designed by yet another Northwestern artist, Sarah Welford, the WNUR hoodie by, you guessed it, yet, yet another <laughs> Northwestern artist, Gemma DeCetra, or a hand-picked vinyl record or CD from WNUR's archives. That's WNUR.org slash donate. And as it is fundraiser February... And you are not the only station that carries This Is Hell that's raising money right now. CKUWFM, the University of Winnipeg campus and community radio station, which is celebrating its 60th anniversary this year, is also in the midst of their fun drive. 
CKUW, more voices, more choices, is a nonprofit volunteer-run organization. CKUW does not air advertising as the station prefers to be supported by the community and dedicated listeners. CKUW is listener-oriented, listener-supported, as opposed to commercial radio, which is advertiser-oriented and advertiser-supported. To show your support for CKUW, just visit ckuw.ca, where you will see all of their donation levels. This is not democracy now or ever. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Ah. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.